0: As I mentioned, if you have your Bible, turn with me to First Kings uh, chapter 19. This is the fourth week in our series called Two Friends and One Hero. We're looking at the prophets Elijah and Elisha and uh, looking to see what God did in them and through them, but, but also to see how they point us to uh, Christ. You know, as we get older, and I'm not that old, but as we get older, we're able to look back on our childhood our upbringing, you might say, and we see things about our parents—the sacrifices they made, and the things that they did—that really just make us even more grateful for them. Uh, again, uh, the way that they guided us, and provided for us, and showed us love. And, and as I think about my own parents, and I look back on the sacrifices they made, you know, uh, I, I'm, as I get older, become even more and more appreciative. Um, but. You know, as we look back with a little bit of time uh, separating, we can also see some of the things that our parents did that were just a little strange, you know, a little unusual. Maybe, in fact, there's a whole uh, series of commercials, Progressive Insurance, that talk about uh, ways to avoid becoming your parents, right? Have you seen these? So uh, these are ways that you can avoid, for example, um, uh, piling up 100 pillows on your, your couch or uh, uh, helping complete strangers back into that very narrow parking spot or or warning people in the grocery store about the particular cart that kind of veers off to the left. If you've seen these, uh, you know what I'm talking about. And I, I had a list of things that I had reached out to some friends and said, hey, tell me some of the things that, that your parents did that were kind of unusual maybe or, or a little strange and I had a list, but, but you know what I'm talking about. And we're, we're, I'm not going to get into uh, the list, but uh, we, we have those things we can look back on, and I'm sure our kids, I know my kids, they've already got a book, I'm sure, on all the weird things that I do and I've done. We can do that. Well, my parents, and I'm going to tread lightly here because they, they watch every sermon on Sunday afternoon, immediately after it's preached, uh, but my parents were, they were pretty chill, are, pretty laid back, um, not easily offended, uh, but one thing that really rent, really sent them reeling was Whispering. This was considered to be, in my family, sort of intolerably rude. So if my sister and I were, were whispering about something or we had friends over and, and we were talking quietly, secretly about something, um, it would really send my parents into a tailspin and they would, say, they would tell us immediately to knock it off. It's rude to whisper because, you know, whispering makes people feel left out and whispering makes people feel rejected or not part of the conversation. But is there ever a time... When it's actually appropriate to whisper. Is there ever a time when it's actually beneficial to whisper? Let me say it a different way. Would God ever whisper? And if he did, what might God whisper about? What well, we're going to find out this morning as we continue to work our way through 1 Kings and looking at these two prophets, if you're new with us, we just open up the Bible, we read it and explain it and, and kind of lean in as it is the very voice of God. And this morning, as we get into the text, we're going to see three things. Uh, we're going to see what would, or why would God ask questions. So why does God ask questions? The second thing we'll see is what prompted God to whisper? And third and finally, what does God's whisper Say to us, what comfort do we find in it? So, uh, 1 Kings chapter 19, and uh, I'm going to read really, it's a larger section, but let me read verses 9 through 18. Here reads the word of the Lord Uh, There he, this is Elijah, came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek to take my life, seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, in a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Mahala shall you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel. All the knees have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So, just a reminder: if if you haven't been around the last week or two, Elijah is in a very dark place. Um, he is depressed, he is filled with feelings of failure and self-loathing. He's been called by God to confront King Ahab and his wife, Queen Jezebel, for the way they are leading Israel into the ground. They are bringing about, cultivating, promoting the worship of idols, and Elijah has been called to confront Ahab for his idolatrous and poor leadership. Uh, Well, Elijah... Uh, in fear, he runs for his life, because after he confronts Elijah, after Elijah confronts Ahab and Jezebel, Jezebel puts a hit out on Elijah's life. And so Elijah takes off, he runs. Uh, he goes uh, from He goes to Beersheba in Judah, uh, where he asks God to take his life. But instead, as you may recall from last week, God bakes him a cake and he en- he encourages him and restores him. God sustains Elijah as he travels forty days and forty nights in the desert. Uh, presumably, uh, if we read the text, without food and water, until he reaches Mount Horeb, which is also known as Mount Sinai, which you may recall from uh, the book of Exodus, the Mount of God. And when Elijah gets there, he retreats into a cave, into the cleft of a rock. And while he's hunkered down in a cave, the word of the Lord comes to him. God asks Elijah a question. Actually, the same question twice, verses 9 and 23. Or 13, rather, what are you doing here? Now, it's a very odd question given the fact that Elijah is actually where God has told him to be through God's very own messenger. And yet twice, God asks Elijah what he's doing there, which may prompt a question for us. Why does God need to ask anyone a question? After all, he's the God who knows everything. Well, when God asks a question, it's not because he doesn't know the answer God asks questions for a variety of reasons throughout the Bible, but more often than not, he does so to give the one he's talking to permission to speak. We have a lot of military folks here at this church, um, more than any place that I've lived or served, and I'm grateful for their service and grateful for their friendship. Um, Well, I asked a couple of uh, career military guys yesterday about this particular nuance here, and um, they, they told me that when a, when a senior person is addressing a junior person, um, and he wants the junior person to respond freely, even if the response may be uh, considered contrary, he gives the junior person permission to speak. Well, here we have the greatest imaginable disparity in ranking possible, right? Right? The creator of the universe talking to one single person, one single human being, right? The creator of the universe uh, talking to one person among billions and billions of people who have graced the earth, one infinitesimal speck on the landscape of the universe. So why would a person feel the chutzpah, why would the person feel the courage to actually talk to God unless he or she is invited to do so? And what God does throughout the scriptures is he asks questions in order to get a response. And he does this a lot. Remember Adam and Eve in the garden. After they've sinned against God and they've rebelled against God and disobeyed him, uh, what does God do? They go out into into the woods, behind the trees, and God asks a series of questions. Where are you? What have you done? Who told you you were naked? He asks these questions. It's not because God doesn't know the answer. He says, Have you eaten of the tree? Again, God knows exactly where they are, what they've done. God even knows what they're thinking. But he does this to, to, again, to call them out, to draw them out, to expose the matters of the heart. When Moses met God at the burning bush in preparation for for Moses, uh, his career ministry, so to speak, God says to him, what's in your hand? God knows what's in his hand. He doesn't need to ask. He does so for a reason. When God granted forgiveness to the Ninevites, you may may remember this, uh, the city of Nineveh, this horrible, wretched, wicked people. God sends Jonah to them to bring them, to call them to repentance. And what do they do? They repent. But what is Jonah? Jonah's furious about it. He can't stand to think that God would pour out his grace on such wicked people, even though he himself uh, was a recipient of God's grace. So what does God say? He says, is it right for you? To be angry? Again, God is doing this for a reason. And this, by the way, is what Jesus does over and over in the Gospels. Jesus, he's asked a question. What does he typically do in response? He asks a question back. Sometimes he's asked a question and we think, yes, this is the the best time in the world for Jesus to lay out the Gospel. In fact, a guy comes to him and says, good teacher, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Now, surely we think Jesus would say, well, here's what you need to do. Romans Road, you know, whatever it is. But no, what does Jesus say? Why do you call me good? We say, why, why would he do that? Well, what, what Jesus does, you know, as is the very image of God, he's, and what God does in this twice-offered uh, question here to Elijah is he's doing something very specific. And, and it's not the, the main point of the passage, but I do think it's something we can learn from. There's broad application here. And as it, it, it answers the question why does God ask questions? Here's our first point. Questions are often better than answers when it comes to exposing matters of the heart. Now think about the ten- all the tension in our world, all the animosity, all the hostility, political and racial division, partisanship, all of these things. I wonder if we as Christians and and, and so-called strangers and citizens of another kingdom, I wonder if we might be more effective at making inroads, more effective at actually sparking meaningful conversations about faith and life and about Jesus, if we learn to ask better questions rather than making provocative statements. Now, there's there's a place for making provocative statements, to be sure, but... Questions actually get to the heart better. This is true for us as citizens. It's true for us as neighbors. It's true for us as parents. true for us as husbands and wives. Think about it this way. If someone says to you just very uh, curtly, I don't believe in God. Well, I have to tell you, my, my natural inclination is to explain why I believe in God. I believe in God for all these, and give all the arguments. But I wonder if it might be better if we just simply said, well, what do you believe in? And allow that person then, put the burden back on that person to explain his or her ideas, presuppositions, and convictions. In fact, I was just talking to a pastor this week at a church, a church in Huntsville, a guy that I'm developing a friendship with. And he told me about a man who, who had come to the States from China to get a Ph.D. in engineering from Georgia Tech. And so he got his Ph.D. in engineering, came to, came to the States as a staunch atheist, as a hater of... All the things of God and really of, even of Christians. Um, but he had this guy that he worked alongside. He got, he got a job in Huntsville and, um, and he had this guy that he, that he worked alongside, this pesky engineer who just kept asking him questions. Now, I personally don't believe an engineer could ever be pesky, um, but this guy just kept peppering him with questions. And he would say things like this He would say, Well, how do you reconcile your rejection of God? With what you know to be the complexity of the universe. And this guy just got frustrated, and so he decided he was gonna read the Old Testament as a way to disprove the Christian faith. And he read it and he just was really roped into it. He decided he was gonna read the New Testament. What do you think he was confronted with in the New Testament? The resurrection of Jesus, right? The atonement. So he starts reading and having more and more questions, more dialogue. And this guy that I talked to, had lunch with this last week, this pastor at Huntsville, said, last week, last Sunday, we had a chance to baptize this guy who not only came to a place where he recognized the existence of God, but he repented of his sins and put his faith in Jesus Christ. And he was baptized. Now, God's the one who did the work. I realize that. But God did that through the questions of the people who worked around this guy who just kept asking, well, how how do you, but what about this? But how about this? Well, even in parenting, think about this, the value, the importance, the, the benefit of asking questions. If your child keeps getting in trouble in class, you know, speaking out of turn, just trying to be funny, always trying to make that funny remark, maybe rather than saying, stop talking in class, I mean, there's a place for that. But maybe rather than that, you might say, why, why is it so important to you to be funny? This is, a, this is a conversation I had with one of my own kids several years ago. Why, why, why does it mean so much to you to be considered funny? What are you hoping to achieve when you blurt something out in class? Questions. Exposing. Now, there were times when I said, don't ever talk again in class, okay? Or you won't be able to eat here again. Um, you know, there's a place for that. But, but questions, you know, I've t- in, in 20 almost 22 years of pastoral ministry, preached hundreds of times and probably shared thousands of illustrations. And, you know, of course, my wife has sat through all of them and heard them all. And, and some, you know, were more effective than others for sure. But there are some that, that have stuck out over time and she'll come back to them. And she'll bring those up and she'll, hey, remember that story? Well, there was one of those is a story of a friend of mine named Don who's a mentor to me. He's in his late 60s. Uh, been in pastoral ministry for 40 years. Don had three boys. Uh, one of those, or two of those boys, actually just deeply loved Jesus. They're in, they're in vocational ministry right now. One's a worship pastor. One's a, a lead teaching pastor, uh, both in Indiana. But the third son was an absolute wild child. I mean, this he he would not follow the rules. He just was constantly rebelling, bucking against the system. When he when he got older, uh, dropped out of uh, high school. Eventually. Uh, got a job in the tech, in a, in a uh, uh, heating and air conditioning and sort of uh, did an apprenticeship and was doing well financially, but was just, just kind of went off the rails sort of in terms of his faith. Partying, he was living at home, but he was partying every night, coming home drunk, sometimes coming home stoned. And so, I mean, Don's telling me this story. He got two boys, two boys that love Jesus and this one is, is going this other way. And I said, Don, like, what did you and Sue do? I, I, I'm, at this point, this is probably maybe 15 years ago and I had all my kids were younger and I'm like what did you do? And he said, "You know, he came home one day off a of one night drunken binge and he was standing at the washing machine and I just said to him I, I just asked him I said, "Is this working for you? Is this really working for you?" And he said, "My son just broke down." Because it wasn't working, you know. He's out there every night. He's meeting girls and he's getting whatever, but it wasn't working. He was more miserable than he'd ever been. That question sparked a series of conversations that actually led to this young man putting his faith in Christ. Sometimes Someone described God's questions as God pressing the play button on our hearts, giving us the freedom to speak. It also shows, of course, something about God, that He delights in our honesty. He wants our openness. He wants to hear our answers, not because He'll be surprised or because He doesn't already know, but He wants us to run to Him and to be open and honest. He wants our honesty. Well, Elijah gives God a raw answer, but it's not really that honest. Elijah says he's been jealous for the Lord, but as he fled, Queen Jezebel and he asked God to take his life, he was really more zealous for his own comfort and his own uh, position, his own safety, than he was for God's honor. Elijah tells God that, that the people of Israel have killed all the prophets by the sword. He's the only one left. Notice the emphasis on himself. I, even I, he says twice, I'm the only one left. Well, that's not entirely true. God has other faithful people in Israel who will not bow before the false god of Baal, Elijah is wallowing in self-pity, telling himself and God lies. One theologian and scholar, uh, Wheaton College President Philip Ryken says, the prophet was preaching to himself the half-truths of self-righteousness, self-pity, and self-importance. One of the reasons we, we do catechisms today, uh, here like we did today is so that we can recite to one another the truths about God, what God says about the world, himself, his salvation. Because we all can easily, we look around, we get these false ideas about what God is life. And so, like. And so what we have to do is every thought that we have about God, who he is, what he's like, how he feels about us, must be constantly checked against what God says about himself in the scriptures. And I find myself regularly i'm just being frank with you regularly allowing thoughts to creep in about god that are not true and i have to constantly check test what i believe about god against the scriptures and then submit to god's own self-revelation so isaiah or elijah rather is telling himself false uh, telling himself false things about god and himself and how does god respond well god tells elijah i want you to go out Leave the cave, go to the edge of the mountain. And as Elijah's standing there, we we see what might be called a tornado that sweeps through. Causes gigantic rocks to cascade down the mountain. But the text says that God was not in the wind. Doesn't mean God wasn't behind the wind. It means God didn't accompany this act of devastation with words. Next, an earthquake causes the very foundation that Elijah is standing on to shake having spent eight years in Southern California, I know how helpless and small you feel when you're in the middle of an earthquake. It's a terrifying feeling. But God's not in the earthquake, we're told. Even in the earthquake, God says nothing. That next fire descends from heaven, not a word from God. Finally, God reveals himself. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. And after the earthquake if I were a cool church planner I would say turn to your neighbor and say after because this does actually matter after the earthquake a fire but the lord was not in the fire and after the fire the sound of a low whisper and when elijah heard it he wrapped his face in the cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold there came a voice to him and said what are you doing here elijah these are now there are three hebrew words that are translated the sound of a low whisper in verse 12. And they're kind of, it's kind of an odd Hebrew construct. And the Hebrew word has a Hebrew language is, is difficult to translate anyway, but these three words are very difficult to render. And so you have a variety of translations depending on what version of the Bible you read. Um, they they literally read, the Hebrew literally literally reads the voice of stillness thin. The voice of stillness thin. Um, The King James Version renders it a still, small voice, which I think is fine. Another translation reads, the sound of silence. So after the noisy demonstration of God's power, tornadoes and earthquakes and fires, these are very loud phenomena, God shows up personally in the stillness of the quiet aftermath. Why why didn't God speak in the earthquake? Why, Why didn't God speak in the tornado? Why not in the fire? Well. It's for a very good reason. It's for an incredible reason, actually. 600 years earlier, there was a man who stood on that same spot, the very same spot, and a theophany, God actually came to him. And God spoke to him with some of the same phenomena. There was fire and smoke and a storm. This was Moses on Mount Sinai when God would actually impart to him the law. So God gives Moses the law, and when he appeared to Moses, he does so in similar fashion. Just prior to giving the Ten Commandments, God employs the same forces of nature that so often accompany a theophany, an appearance of God. Fire, smoke, earthquake, thundering, billowing clouds. Only when God met with Moses, he spoke to Moses from the wind, from the storm. Exodus 19 tells us that God answered Moses in the thunder, and Moses, too, covered his face before God. Well, this time, 600 years later, with the prophet Elijah, God brings about the same phenomena, only he doesn't say a word through any of it. It's after the storm is gone, after the wind after the fire, have all disappeared, that God speaks in a whisper to Elijah. And when God does, what does Elijah do? He too covers his face. There are similarities and differences, convergence and divergence. Why the difference? It's the difference between law and grace, the commands of God and the grace of God. The significance of God speaking through the devastating forces of nature and then later through a gentle whisper, through a still small voice, God is showing us the difference between the law and the gospel. The law is a voice of devastation given in the middle of the tempest of a wind, of a thunderstorm, lightning attended to by signs and wonders, Hebrews 2 tells us. But the gospel is a tender voice of mercy, of love of grace and peace, of pardon, of a righteousness from the outside of the free gift of salvation in Christ. The voice of God, the voice of the law, crushes. As one person has said, it breaks the rocky hearts of men in pieces. It shakes their consciences and fills their minds with a sense of God's fiery wrath and the punishment they know they well deserve. But the gospel then comes and speaks gently to them a word of peace and pardon available in Christ. I love uh, Charles Spurgeon had it preached on, you know, the guys, really the 17th, 18th century, 19th centuries, some of those guys would just take one verse. The Puritans were, were famous for this one verse and preached like an hour-long sermon. Uh, Charles Spurgeon preaches, has a sermon that he preached in 1892 on just two verses in 1 Kings 19. And I just love what he had to say. And Let me just share a little bit. He says this, shame faced on account of his errors, Elijah is now resolved to follow his Lord at once. So the law brings that shame. And he stands at the opening of the cave to hear what God, what God the Lord will speak. And then he Grace makes us tender in the matter of obedience. That's pretty rich, isn't it? The more that we understand all that God has given us, the more that we understand the love that we have received that we don't deserve, the more that we understand the forgiveness that is ours, that we cannot earn. Grace makes us tender in the matter of obedience. Those who hear the voice of the Lord are sure to cry, Lord, show me what thou wouldst have me do. When the voice of grace wins the willing ear, it creates a ready foot to go where God bids us. Our desire is to know the Lord's will and promptly to fulfill it, for the heavenly whisper has for its burden, follow me. Here's our second point this morning. The whisper of God conveys a message of grace to convert and comfort all who will receive it. We talked about this last week for, for a minute. Everywhere we turn, you know, we feel like we're being judged. Everywhere we look, people are judging. How are we parenting? Uh, why would you leave the house in that outfit? Um, what, how are you spend, why would you spend your money on that? Judging us by how we spend our time. Again, shaking our head, their heads at the decisions we make. Everywhere we look, we, we do feel, whether it's pastors, parents, coaches, friends, neighbors, co-workers, we feel a sense of judgment that we're being constantly evaluated. These are the instruments of the law telling us we must do more, that we haven't done enough. And then we have in the Bible all these commands. We read the commands of the Scripture uh, that tell us what to do and what not to do. And, of course, we feel like we failed because we have. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I've not done that even today. I've failed at that. We see all these commands. Do this and don't do it. Do not lie. Do not covet. Right. Do not have any other gods before me. And then the the positive, rejoice in the Lord always. Pray without ceasing. And we read those, and and, and naturally we, we feel condemned because we know we've not done all of those things. When we read those commands, we are crushed with feelings of guilt and shame and helplessness. We know we failed. And if you don't believe you failed, you don't understand the gravity and the weight of God's holiness. We know we failed, which leads us either to a place of denial, depression, or desperate self-justification. Some people just deny it. They don't want to hear about sin. They don't want to hear about judgment. They don't want to hear about law because they know that that's going to come. They don't want to, don't want to deal with that. They just deny it that they've failed. For others, it leads to depression. Elijah was depressed, we saw last week, because he felt like a failure. And depression, by the way, is something that many mature Christians have suffered from. Martin Luther, the aforementioned Charles Spurgeon, C.S. Lewis, Mother Teresa, battled debilitating depression, uh, John Calvin, John Wesley, David Brainerd, Handel of Handel's Messiah, all experienced horrible depression. Depression can be spiritual or physiological or both combination of things, but for some, the guilt of failing to keep God's law, that judgment can lead to spiritual depression. Others try desperately to justify themselves, to prove that there they're really were something. I was talking with a guy recently who said he was given this this initiative at work or, or this command, if you will, this mandate, and he said what it really was was it was a it was a justify your existence letter. He was supposed to put together the reasons why he should still remain employed in this particular uh, company. Justify your existence, he said. That's what it was. And for many people, they feel like their whole lives are that. I have to prove that even in light of my history, based on the things I've done, whatever, I have to prove that I'm worth being loved, that I'm worth being accepted, that I'm worth being respected and valued. The law of of, of God weighs on them. And if we feel that way, frankly, if we feel like we've failed and not kept God's standard, we've not fully obeyed God, then the law has done its job. In theological circles, the law is called the first of God's two words. And yet even as we realize that we've failed in a thousand ways, God's second word comes in. There's law and gospel, law and grace. I think one of the great problems that I see in, in the evangelical world and I'm not, not much of a, a guy to offer diagnostics or prognostications, but but I do see this tendency to overemphasize one aspect of God's character to the exclusion of another attribute. So God's love is emphasized over and against His holiness. People say, well, God, God couldn't do that because God is a God of love. But they're failing to consider the rest of God's revelation. His forgiveness is emphasized over. Over and against his judgment against those who were unrepentant. And this, of course, can lead to universalism. Well, everybody's forgiven in the end. And we see some prominent, well-known pastors who've gone down that road. His closeness at the expense of his magnificence and his power and glory. You hear the casual way that some people talk about God? Makes me uncomfortable, to be honest with you. His grace, though... I believe is one of those things that's really impossible to overemphasize if it is rightly understood. The Bible is the story of God's grace. As we've said, I've said to you in each of the previous weeks of the series, the Bible is not a self-help book. It's not a to-do list. It's not a manual on self-improvement. It's not a roadmap to get us to God. It is first and foremost the story of a loving God and His merciful salvation, a salvation which features and centers on the person of Jesus. You say, well, where's Jesus in this story? Well, Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the gentleness and grace of God that he reveals to Elijah through a whisper. What did Jesus say to a crowd of exhausted people who had been told by their own shepherds that the only way to get to God, the only way to be right with God was to keep all the commands and a thousand rules and a million interpretations? We read it in Matthew 11. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Someone asked me recently, you know, why do you... Why do you love being a pastor? Why do you keep doing this? I see pastors that are resigning, you know, 2021, the great resignation for those in pastoral ministry. Why do you keep doing this? Well, it's not because I love telling people what to do, it's because I want I love giving people in good, good news, encouraging news about Jesus. I love telling those people who are worn down. Just just beaten down, exhausted, feeling like failures, the weight of their own sin, bearing down on them like an anvil. I love saying to you, to them, it's okay. God's forgiveness in Christ is enough. Jesus says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. No one who is troubled, no one who is weary, no one who is heavy laden, exhausted, or beaten down is left out. Even if the trouble is self-inflicted or inflicted by others, Jesus' offer is to all. Come to me. And that particle all is important because Jesus knows there will be some who say, no, it's too late for me. It's too late. Or Jesus knows there will be some who say, but you don't know what I've done. And there will be some who say, but what I've done is beyond forgiveness. Jesus says all because he knows that there will be those who will be filled with doubt and those who will believe that they don't have, they cannot come to Jesus, that this offer is not good for them, that it's expired for them, they've blown it too much, and they would let feelings of self-guilt, self-condemnation prevent them from coming to Jesus. But Jesus makes it abundantly clear, no one is excluded from this invitation. Now, again, we're not in Matthew 9, so I'm not explaining that whole chapter. But the people that Jesus is talking to were weary and heavy laden, not because they've been walking so far, they've gotten so many steps in. It's because they've been trying endlessly to justify themselves before God. And they're being told by their own shepherds, the religious leaders, the Pharisees, that if they wanted to please God, they had to do all of these lists of things. But Jesus comes and he offers rest. I love how 4th century uh, theologian John Chrysostom, who was called the man with a golden tongue, a great preacher, he summarizes Jesus' offer this way. Jesus says, not I will save you only, but what is much greater, I will refresh you. That is, I will set you in all quietness. 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 The calm after the storm. This sounds familiar, doesn't it? It's the very scene in which God reveals himself to Elijah on the mountain, all of which was meant to point to the grace and the gentleness and the mercy of God revealed and poured out in the person of Jesus Christ. Here's our final point this morning. In Jesus Christ, the grace and gentleness of God get a face to know God is to look to Jesus. Here we are, broken, sinful people who stand condemned in the presence of a holy God. Apart from Christ, we have no hope for salvation. This is a God in whom there is no darkness, but only light. What God demands for those who would approach Him is perfection. It's perfection. It's not steady improvement. It's not improvement over the years, although that's valuable and important, but it's perfection. We have no hope of attaining it. Yet Jesus, the gentleness of God, Jesus was perfect for us. Jesus satisfied all of God's righteous requirements that were heaped on us. And not only that, he died to pay the penalty for our rebellion. And his perfect record is ours by faith alone. Jesus' yoke is easy in that it offers rest from pretense, freedom to fail without worrying about where we stand with God. The release of shame. Rest from the endless drive to show everyone around us how good we are. And end to trying to be good enough, trying to improve enough, trying to earn God's acceptance. Uh, and I, let me end with this. this in their book, uh, Why the Reformation Still Matters, Reeves and Chesters write this. Every day you will meet people who are trying to prove themselves. Some are trying to prove themselves to God. Many are trying to prove themselves to others to establish their own identity. All these futile attempts at self-justification are stretching people to the breaking point. Do you feel this? The people you talk to, the people you're around outside of Christ? Into this frenzy, Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. We have good news for our busy culture, good news of justification by grace. If you feel exhausted this morning, you just can't keep up with everybody's expectations of you, God has a word for you this morning, and it's this. Jesus' work on the cross was enough to save you. This is why he said it's finished. There's nothing you can do to add to it. Everybody around you may think you're not doing enough. Or whatever. Jesus actually did enough for you so that by trusting in him, you could be forgiven and made right with God If you feel separated from God this morning, you know that you don't really know him. You've never put your faith in Jesus. You've never turned from your sin. God is whispering something to you this morning, and it's this. Come to me through my son, and I will forgive you, and I will make you whole. If you feel like a failure this morning, you know you've been far from perfect, You've not obeyed every command, starting with the very first one, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You failed him in word, thought, motive, and deed. God has a word for you this morning through, you might say, a still, small voice. And it's this, in Christ, you are loved. In Christ, you are received. I welcome you. I embrace you as a son or daughter because of the work of my son. I pray that we have the ears to hear what God will say to each of us this morning. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know we keep, our hearts are prone to wonder and our, parts, our hearts are prone to self-justification and to trying to prove and defend and, and blame shift and all of those things. Will you give us the humility to confess our sins to you? And will you help us, Father? Will you keep us near the cross. Will you keep us near the cross where we'll find hope and healing and forgiveness and a reminder of your love and justice, your power and mercy, your grace and your forgiveness. Father, impress it upon our hearts by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.